Hello, everyone. My name is Jody Avergan. I'm the editor and executive producer of Death on a Lot. Welcome to everyone's favorite piece of audio content, the bonus episode. <laughs> People just can't get enough of bonus episodes. Do you think you could do a series that is just only bonus episodes? It's the word bonus, just you just feel good. It, it starts like it's going to be an offensive word, mm-hmm. and then it just ends fun for the whole family. So, yeah, I think we do a whole series called uh, The Bonus Episode Podcast. <laughs> um, look, really, we did this at the end of last season, and we're doing it again. It's a chance to talk about some of the stories we told, some of the stories we didn't get a chance to tell, some of the things we learned, and the friends we made along the way. Those friends are gathered here right now. The voice you've already heard, Adam McKay, host. Hello. Hey there. And with us is Brian Steele, writer on the series, who also worked on the first season. Hello, Brian. Hello, hello. Nice to see you. And then Hadley Mears is here, who is brought on board as a writer for this season um, and is also an expert throughout the series. You've heard her voice, but hello, Hadley. Hello, all. Um, it's also nice to just be in a room together. We are yes. made, We made this thing over Zoom, and here <laughs> we all are. And even uh, Death at the Wing, yeah. a lot of that was COVID Zoom. Peak yeah, COVID. That, yeah. Was, yeah. that was a product of the pandemic. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about why we went in this direction in this season. Um, and instead of, you know, just doing more basketball. Um, but uh, let's like start going around real quick with some specifics. I was wondering if people could just nominate a favorite piece of tape or a favorite moment from the season that we just wrapped up. So Hadley, you want to start? Oh, absolutely. My favorite piece of tape that we found by far was David Niven, the famous movie star and one of my favorite Hollywood characters of all time, actually reading his Hollywood memoir, Bring on the Empty Horses, because I find him to be everything that good reporting on the past should be. Hmm. He tells it in this loving yet snarky way. I don't think he lets everybody know everything, but he gives you the essence of who people were and what situations were. And that's what I really love in a great memoir or history is that kind of core essence of what was going on at the time. As I have already indicated, Flynn was never happier than when witnessing the discomfiture of his friends. One of my chores aboard Scirocco was the mixing of the drinks, um, a full-time job. As there was only a primitive refrigerator on board, we bought a large block of ice at the beginning of each voyage. In a rough sea, I was steadying the weekend block with my left hand, while hacking off suitable chunks with an ice pick held in my right. Scirocco gave a violent lurch, and I found that I was unable to remove my left hand from the ice. Looking down, I noticed with a sort of semi-detached interest that I had plunged the ice pick right through my middle finger. I yelled to El to come and get ready with the first aid kit. He was delighted at what he saw. Hey, that's great sport, he said. Don't pull it out yet. We must show this to the girls. Impaled on the ice block, I waited below while Flynn rounded up the crew. Much to his delight, one of them fainted when she saw what had happened. We should talk about the process. We had to find that memoir, which he recorded in part on for audio, but it only exists on tape. Yes. And Harry Nelson, producer on the series, had to go track it down, digitize it, and then we got to listen to it. But you're, so you're the Hollywood historian in the room here, the one who actually knows this stuff. <laughs> um, was there were there stories in there that you hadn't heard, or was there did it sort of illuminate an era in a way that you hadn't known before? <laughs> Um, <laughs> the first time I read Ring on the Empty Horses was when I was like 10. Oh, <laughs> Should be illegal. My, my mother was obsessed with old Hollywood and, and loved it. So it was kind of like my Bible growing Amazing. up. So I know nothing was new. It's all firmly embedded within me. See, like any good podcast series, it's really just an excuse to sneak in all the things you've loved since you were, you know, the first season was just Adam's very thinly veiled excuse to talk about all the basketball players he was obsessed with. This was your very thinly veiled excuse to sneak in all the empty horses. Um, and that's the that's the memoir that includes that. I mean, there's so many Errol stories in there, but the one that sticks with me is just when Errol Flynn tells David... Let me let me show you where the best looking girls in LA are. They mm-hmm. hop in the car and they drive over to a high school oh. as it's letting oh. out at two thirty PM or whatever. Oh. It's just like oh my god. Simpler times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that whole episode is full of moments like that, but just yeah. unreal. Um I mean it tells you something about Hollywood history that David would even feel comfortable putting that into his memoir. 
Well, also, Errol was long dead at that right. point. And yeah. so I think that was part of it. Um, we'll circle back to all this stuff. But Brian, you want to nominate a favorite moment or piece of tape? Yeah. Well, you know, it was really interesting when we started the process for this season because... We wanted to speak to people who actually lived through some this time. And the, as a result, we were talking to people who potentially were in their 80s, 90s. Um, some were younger. We got to talk to Ron Howard, which yeah. was really a, a joy. And he was just really great. But one of the people we tracked down was possibly the last person alive to have actively been blacklisted um, at the time in the 1950s, and that was the documentarian and actress Lee Grant. And she was a firecracker. She was so much fun to talk to. She was really excited to talk because she has been just a, a political crusader through all of her films for years and obviously sees the way the world is going and really wanted to just, even for this, she said, to do her part to help like fight back. But my favorite piece of tape from her was she was talking about her experiences um, testifying before HUAC, but then also all the people, including John Garfield, who passed away due to the stress of the experience. And she basically said that she was, unlike them, who she found their deaths tragic, she was too stubborn to die. <laughs> and I really appreciated that and also could get that feeling from talking to her. They killed them. They killed them. And by the way, my husband died at 52. Arnie Manoff died at 52. My, my friend Saul Kaplan and Fra Kaplan, Fra Heflin Vansister, died in their late 40s and 50s. People were crashing, crashing. Everybody died young, and I was, I was too mean and, and too stubborn to die. Um, but she was just, uh, just an incredible woman, still is. So that that was one of my favorites, definitely. I mean, Adam, do you feel like, you know, you're part of this industry? Do you feel connected to that era? Those stories, that era, is still kind of present in the work that you do? Yeah. Yeah, that that was one of the big discoveries while making this. I mean, you look at, you know, these political waves that would blow through the industry, whether it was the McCarthy era, whether it was an era like the 70s, where sort of the creatives almost completely took over. And the same sort of ups and downs are happening now, like we're in a period where, you know, the financialization of studios and streamers has happened. Uh, whereas when the streamers first hit, there was this crazy explosion of like Wild West kind of feeling. Uh, the big difference, I mean, these stories, obviously, about the way people behaved in Hollywood with the sexism and the chasing young women and straight up murder sometimes. That definitely in the last 10 to 15 years has changed. I mean, I remember when I first started working in TV back in the 90s, there was still that kind of stuff happening. Um, but yeah, it's actually shocking how little it's changed and the impact that media has if anything, it's so all-consuming and all-enveloping now. I always thought we were living in this time, oh, media has never been like this. But then, sure yeah. enough, we dig into the effect those movies and TV shows had, and it's, it's, it's really astounding. So, Adam, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, are you saying that you've never murdered anyone in Hollywood then? Is that what I'm getting from that? Well, um, <laughs> I'm not legally allowed to answer that. Okay. <laughs> Your work with the Illuminati until, is kind of... Uh, until the next bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but like, Hadley, I mean, I guess I guess this is a question you can ask anyone who does sort of the work of hi history. Um, but, like, you live in this world. Do you feel like you are finding stories that illuminate, you know, how different 
things were back there, or do you feel like you just mostly find connections? Listen, I'm a very dark, cynical person, okay. and <laughs> I think that the more things change, the more they stay the same. I was actually in a former life a stand-in for a long time. Uh-huh. I had an AD grab my butt. I had all sorts of stuff happen to me on set. Wow. So in terms of the sexual harassment stuff, I feel like very little has a change, except in the last couple of years I was doing stand-in work. That was right when stuff started to change and I could see it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's illuminating in the sense that Hollywood has always been a place where people come to reinvent themselves and they often fall prey to a lot of very human follies when they're out here, when they finally get to become the thing they always wanted to be. Hmm. And I think that that is something that goes on throughout Hollywood history and throughout Los Angeles history. It's a very Los Angeles story as well. Um, Adam, you want to nominate a moment or a piece of tape that stuck with you? Yeah, there were quite a few. I would probably nominate Lori Santos and the monkey study that she (laughs) cited. I've repeated this to about a dozen people, and every person who hears that, their mind is blown. That the monkeys will, of course, go with food over images unless it's the alpha. And I just can't get over that. That that one blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And then another one is just Hattie McDaniel, the whole episode and the place that her life ended up where she became a central figure in the court cases that led to making redlining the racist practice of keeping neighborhoods all white to making that illegal and i had no idea so those were the two where my mind was properly blown i've been obsessed with hattie for a long time i just find her such a fascinating admirable complicated figure and i just think she's Such an example of somebody who, you know, she did what she had to do. And I feel like so many times, especially in culture today, we're so black and white, we never look at that gray area. And man, she did what she had to do to be able to be the performer she wanted to be and survive. And she's vilified. And then on the side, though, what she's actually doing is really doing a lot of amazing things for the civil rights movement. And so to me, she's just such an important figure and such a tragic figure, because it's really how a lot of times you have to rob Peter to pay Paul. You know, yeah. you got to compromise in life and it's really painful and it can be really tragic. And so to me, that's that's the Hattie story. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the fame stuff, Adam, well, first off, I think people can probably pick up on the fact that a big part of editing this series is like we do a lot of riffs and then we end up <laughs> cutting them down or rewriting them or whatever. And, you know, it's part of one, of one of my favorite parts of making this. But, you know, I think we probably had, you know, four minutes on the juice, the monkey juice study at one point and maybe cut it down to one line. Um, but but also, I mean, I think even in the very first conversation we had about this season, this idea that you just hinted at, you know, of like what is fame and why all of a sudden when you see someone on a screen does does just rewire your brain in some way? I mean, I know you were like really big on wanting to talk about that. We talked about it a little bit, but you want to, you want to riff a little bit on that? Yeah. It's interesting because we're living in a time where media advertising, marketing, propaganda, all whatever you want to call sort of the science of influence and persuasion has never been as precise as it is now. Um, it, it really is a full on science, whereas, you know, in the 50s and 60s, they were still kind of figuring it out. So I, I just have been curious because we, we all know what a huge sway social media, TikTok, uh, streaming movies, images have over our lives. And I thought of a story where I was going to meet a doctor because I had torn my knee, my meniscus, and I was sitting in the lobby and they had a TV screen there playing a promotional clip for the doctor and the place. So they were showing him, there was graphics. <laughs> and I wasn't even thinking about it. It was just in the corner. And I went in to meet the doctor and I just noticed there was a little jump 
in adrenaline that was strange for meeting a need doctor. Wow. And I was like, I bet you it was seeing him on the screen. Mm. And it's almost like a cognitive trick, like celebrity and fame, because you sort of imbue the image with all the highest level alpha traits. And in a weird way, that one cognitive trick is what created Hollywood. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I honestly could talk about it for hours and hours. <laughs> and, and you look at the ways in which we're not talking about the issues, the giant issues that are shaping the time we're living in right now. And it's this feel-good kind of rhythm that we're in so we can be sold. So, anyway, yeah. I said I could go on and on, <laughs> and I already I mean, have. No, but, but that, uh, you know, not to get too too big here, because I want to get some more sort of nominations for little moments. But, you know, what you're getting at there, I think, is the what I've come to realize is I think the heart of, like, what we're up to in the first season and the way we try to find a new lens in the second season, but is these moments where media is radically shifting, the culture at large and politics at large and things like, you know, income inequality and American democracy and all these things are shifting at the same time. And it just creates these stresses. And how does that come crashing down on a small world and often results in tragedy? Um, But it is how all those forces kind of like collide. And I do think we're in one of those moments now. And I think we were certainly post-war. Brian, when we first started talking about this series, like, so for people who listened to the first season, you know, I think it's a little reductive. I think one big note there was that kind of like the 80s was a moment when Reaganism just came in and just like overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. right? And wrote a new story, you know, just wiped things aside and wrote a new story. And when we were coming into this season and we were looking at the 50s and the post-war era, we had that same instinct to be like, what was the overwhelming story that emerged? But then as we started making this... And we worked a lot and you really convinced me that like actually this is a story much less about one narrative taking over and more about an era where like, you know, all the chips were on the table and people were just scrambling and fighting. And for every narrative, there's a counter narrative for good and bad. Yeah. I I mean, I think that one of the things that really popped when I started digging into this era was that um, much of modern America and our society and culture really was birthed out of this time. Obviously, it's all a continuum, and so there's things dating back hundreds of years. But so much of it came out of this time when we had just had this seismic war and uh, for a just cause, and everyone was coming home, and there was the Depression and then the war, and people wanted to be done with that, and they wanted to just lead good upstanding uh, lives. And so there was a rising liberal movement, uh, the civil rights movement, the the dawning of the women's movement. Um, and then there was a rising conservative movement. You saw the birth of the John Birch movement of Barry Goldwater. You saw the beginnings of both Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan's political careers in Southern California around this time, you saw these two rising forces kind of doing battle to shape what the next 50, 60, 70 years of America was going to look like. And that's really what we zeroed in on, was both of these forces uh, fighting in that moment to write the story of America. We also noticed that the story of America became more important than ever mm-hmm. because media was truly taking over how we communicated with each other. And then media exploded because of uh, television all of a sudden entering the zeitgeist. Um, and so it just was this kind of complicated tapestry that we tried to to parse through, but we really saw the beginnings of everything that led to what we explored last season, which was the 1980s, and how Ronald Reagan uh, was able to do the things he was able to do leading up to today and all the things we've been through over the last five years, Trumpism and the COVID crisis and all yeah. of that. 
I mean, I, I that was one of my favorite things in this season was all these little moments where you realize that there were pockets of progressivism and then how did those get clawed back or how did those get subsumed? And so, you know, um, Isaac Butler talked about how at the very beginning of television, there was the live TV drama movement in New York. And like you had all these playwrights and really high minded folks taking advantage of this new medium. And then all of a sudden it just gets, you know, totally co-opted mm-hmm. um, by corporate forces, as we described. And Hadley, you know, you talk about in the Errol Flynn episode how weirdly, you know, women's portrayals on screen were starting to move in a really progressive direction right before the war. And then you come back from the war. It's like, nope. You come back from the war and they're all just sex symbols or housewives, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have your Grace Kellys and your Audrey Hepburns and your Ava Gardners who flourish and were wonderful actresses at this time period. But if you look at their roles, they're actually still for the most part, quite regressive in a way. They aren't getting to play the things that Catherine Hepburn and Irene Dunn and Betty Davis and all those amazing 1930s women got to play. They're not able to fully be liberated. Everything about them still goes back to who they end up with at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's, you know, periods of change can lead to wonderful things or if people get too scared horrible things and and hearing you guys talk about that sort of regression i really think the you know and once again this is just theoretical but i think the missing ingredient is ptsd i just think Mm -hmm. the entire country was shell-shocked whether it was literally or in an ancillary way and you know, from getting to talk to my grandparents when I was enough of an adult, they could speak freely with me. That that was the sense I mm-hmm. got. Everyone wanted to get into that little home, you know, <laughs> they had the TV for, you know, watch something that made them feel good, maybe drink a ton of booze, have dark feelings and thoughts that would never leave the house and have everything be nice like that that was kind of the prevailing kind of feeling the other interesting thing is you know really where this season came out of in some ways was when we were doing death at the wing we kept saying the only other case we've seen like this is hollywood (laughs) where so many people died in a kind of you know time frame and then it sort of somewhat stopped um And so really it was fascinating that we could leap into this and the same sort of textures and crisscrossing and collisions with history were all there, maybe even in a more apparent way uh, than the basketball. Uh, You know, it's interesting you talk about PTSD. One of the things I came across is just the story of Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, there's newsreels kind of trumpeting him uh, volunteering before a lot of movie stars to go serve, and then unlike a lot of movie stars, he really did serve yes. and flew lots of like uh, bombing runs uh, during the war. But Jimmy Stewart, uh, also famously or maybe not famously, was haunted by PTSD, and he would have incidents on sets and uh, tremors, really? and uh, you know he he was a man haunted. And comparing that to his image as the aw shucks. Yeah. All American Dad kind of sums up what you're talking about a little bit of, and obviously he did some really textured, complicated movies with Hitchcock and you know whatnot. But just his persona and the darkness underneath uh, really was what America was going through at that time. Um, so it, it, PTSD is a huge factor in that. Well, and can I say, as someone who is just a listener uh, to Death on the wing, which I loved because I care about college basketball more than anything in the world. It's been a very hard season for me, but that's all right. And I, you know, I think one of the things too is a lot of the guys who became these uber stars in the 80s in basketball had also probably suffered from PTSD. They probably also had a very hard life. And so there's a lot of parallels there between a lot of these stars who came from really tough circumstances, experienced the depression, then the war, all of these things. It really kind of mimics what trauma does to people. And, you know, I always say that sports, ESPN is just bravo for dudes, right? It's all just a soap (laughs) opera. It's all just talking about, you know, gossiping about people and their stats and how they were acting and who they're sleeping with. 
And so I think those kind of cultural figures hold up a mirror to society about what's well, going on mm-hmm. in people's feelings as a whole in the country. Well, that's one thing that we talked about. Was it Lori Santos or, or someone just about how celebrity allows us to uh, have that schadenfreude about mm-hmm. people yeah. that we couldn't have with the people in our immediate, uh, you know, our family, well, our friends. We could wish we can uh, savor their downfall from afar um, without feeling bad about it. And so we process a lot of things. We also let them test out. I mean, that was the whole thing we, when we were talking about uh, the actor studio. And so we let them test out kind of the fringes of a, a social acceptable behavior and then see if they can pull it off or not before we do. So we have a very complicated relationship with celebrity and what role it plays in our own psychology. This is, I guess, a chance to talk about James Dean, which is the episode where we sort of get into some of this stuff. At some level, understand why it was so compelling in light of what you you were just saying for a character who kind of like, there's this disconnect between the generations, you know? And I mean, James Dean, I mean, in some way, was just kind of like lashing out because his parents weren't doing the work to figure their own shit out. And so it creates this chasm. You know, I mean, there's never a moment where James Dean yells at his parents on screen like, you need to go to therapy. But that's effectively what he's saying. right? Um, But let's talk about James Dean for a second. And then I want to talk about some other moments because I think we rode the what do we think of James Dean roller coaster more than almost any other character here? And Hadley's making faces as I say this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I will say Isaac Butler, who we interviewed for the series and wrote about the method and did a ton of work on James Dean. At the end of the day, I think Isaac will be comfortable with me saying this. Kind of thinks James Dean's full of hot air and is a little bit of a joke, and you know, rolls his eyes. I started that way. I've come around. Maybe I'm going back. But Hadley, what do you what do you think of James Dean? I hate James. <laughs> okay. Dean. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I you know, his acting is not my forte. I like, uh, like I said, screwball comedies. I right. like my William Powell's and my Cary Grant's. I that that is my thing. And, and writing the podcast and interviewing everybody, you know, I do think he was very important in terms of this explosion in teen culture, a new way for men to be and express themselves and portray themselves. But I, I find him insufferable. <laughs> And I uh, hate his acting style, and I don't think he's cute. Like, I just, there's nothing there's about the him I like. Sorry. He's uh, <laughs> um, a little much. He's extra. He's extra. Ex- there's no coolness. Giants? What about Giant? That performance, like, oh. Maybe it's, <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe it's accidental, but how bizarre he is in that role as mm. Jet Rink is so great because it tracks with how bizarre the people who discovered that oil were. Like, you read the stories of the oil families, like the hunts, and they just, like, there's murders, there's weird behavior, paranoia, and that performance, and clashing with the old style, I love it. Now, I'm not saying, you know, if we were hanging out with James Dean, I'd probably be like, all right. You don't want to play bongos with him? (laughs) (laughs) At the very least, you could say that James Dean was probably the exact same when you're hanging out in person as he is on screen. And, you know, that's the part that's the part where I find some sympathies. I do think he was committed in whatever way to the cause of naive, artistic, you know, expression and bringing the attention onto. Yeah, I guess bringing the attention (laughs) on himself a little bit. Yeah. But, um, you know, as as I as someone who I think we say this in the in the episode, but someone who was trying to like grab on to the sort of live wire of life. I sort of respect him in that way. But yeah, he's a little much on on screen. Um, Let's do another quick little round on favorite pieces of tape that didn't make it into the series. Obviously, when you make something like this, you have to cut a lot of stories. The ones that always break my heart are the, you know, why did the Lassie riff have to be 30 seconds? We had had, had four and a half minutes of great Lassie content, but in the end, I was talked off the ledge. I had to cut it down. Uh, But any other... Brian, you want to start here? Yeah, well, you know, unsurprisingly, there's lots of tape that didn't make it that I really loved. Some of it just silly and entertaining some of it really profound um uh a couple that uh, i'll zero in on are well one i got to uh talk to brandon routh who played superman and superman returns oh yeah um and was just a really sweet guy and he had a lot of thoughts on what it means to play superman what it means to find yourself somewhat trapped in that part and then the the psychological work he's done to kind of push through that and, you know, build a career separate from that, but also very tied into that. 
fame is is strange and celebrity is is strange and and I and it's also even maybe more unique for me because of the character I'm most linked with. The challenging most challenging aspect of it at the time because I had not experienced it at all. I mean, I was so okay, all right. So I'm dredging up, I'm remembering things now. When I so the Superman process was a long process for me. All kinds of crazy coincidences, you might say, led me to the to 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 this experience, but when I knew I was pretty much knew I was getting the job, news got leaked that it was might be me, but nobody knew who I was. My picture was on the internet. Uh, you know, this is two thousand three, and I just remember I just I hid in my apartment because I didn't know what to do. People were like wanted to to uh, take my picture, and I had never experienced any of that. So I just hid in my apartment for about a week and a half. I, I would think that was the first time I truly experienced paparazzi, <laughs> and it took me a long time to kind of become comfortable with that. I didn't enjoy being photographed every time you come out of the hotel, driving around and looking, oh, wow, as the car <laughs> follows you. That stuff's not great. Didn't really care for that. It's still surreal to me because I just see, I'm just Brandon. When I'm at home, I'm dad, you know, and, and sometimes I, I get reminded that I'm not, I'm not Superman. Uh, knowing the experience that or some of the experience that George had and that, that Chris had was for me to really just go, I, I'm aware of this possibility of these negatives that could come of it, but I'm not going to focus on it. Just a really sweet, great guy. And we didn't exactly, these are overstuffed episodes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we didn't exactly find the space for it, which was too bad, but just a great guy to get to chat with. So, um, and then another is um, with, uh, Professor Xavier Irujo, I believe mm-hmm. that's how you pronounce his name, um, who was a genocide studies professor. And we talked about the genocide of Native Americans and um, from the dawning days of the first white settlers up through basically modern times. Um, and it was really fascinating. And one of the things he's done a lot of work on is the uh, Christian schools. You know, we hear a lot about the slaughter and brutal murder of Native Americans throughout the 19th century. Um, But the real, it seems, final nail in uh, a certain part of that culture, at least uh, hopefully it's rebuilding, was that all these schools took kids away Mm -hmm. from their parents and brought them in and broke the the cultural continuum and taught them something else. And a lot of these... Uh, those kids, their kids and grandchildren now are trying to re-find where they're from as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he spoke really eloquently about just the struggles and just the brutality that occurred. Um, And we explored some of that through our John Wayne episode and about just manifest destiny and how it's played out in a variety of different ways, but we didn't have room for that. And it really moved me. Um, so that was something else that I, I, I wanted to highlight. Yeah. I mean, that John Wayne episode was just a lot full of too many yeah. crazy twists and turns. And it was one where I think at the end of the day, it was just like, we got to just get out of the way of this and just basically tell it because mm. it's got so many insane twists and turns in there. I, I for one will not forget the just, the Howard Hughes yeah. policy of not letting his drivers on set drive over bumps more than two miles per hour because he was worried it would jiggle his starlet's breasts yeah. and cause them to wow. sag over time. I mean, just like, How- Howard Hughes. I mean, uh, not surprisingly, but Howard Hughes yeah. <laughs> could be a whole other series. But I-, I-, I will say we talked a little bit about um, history repeating itself earlier and watching some of the Elon Musk stuff that's going on right now Mm -hmm. and then at the exact same moment diving into Howard Hughes. Now, Howard Hughes, frankly, is a more interesting version of Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a little pedestrian in a lot of ways. But seeing him march into RKO and just being like, I'm going to take this over and I know exactly what to do, firing everyone and the whole thing falling apart while he's playing to his own ego and uh, making all these insane rules. It's certainly reminiscent of what's going on with Twitter right now. So it, we, hmm. we kept on hitting things like that in this series where you would find something and be like, you know, the parallels are striking to what's going on in the world today. Hadley, you got a piece of tape that we didn't get to use that you love? I had a lovely conversation with uh, Sidney Poitier Hartstrong, the daughter of the legendary actor Sidney Poitier, and we talked a lot about how, you know, 
her father and the few black actors who were allowed to be famous uh, in the 1950s and 60s really made being political and being active agents in change part of their persona. And they, they were able to do that. And we had a really interesting exchange about how, you know, that wasn't available to Hattie because Sidney Poitier was this man. Mm-hmm. He was a leading man. He was beautifully handsome in a traditional sense. And so it just really hit home for me all these thoughts of, you know, misogyny and there's of beauty. And he was able to do this partially because even though he was also an oppressed person, he had these natural physical gifts and physical presence that made him, it made it easier for him to change things yeah. and be outspoken. Um, I also just really love the move of, Sydney naming his daughter Sydney. <laughs> yeah, as a as a male Jody, I seriously considered naming my daughter Jody Junior. Uh, I got I got talked out of that, but uh, I like that. Though they're spelled differently, right? They are spelled differently. Yes. Yeah. Well, Sydney's a great name for yeah, a woman. Great name. Mm-hmm. Great beautiful yeah. name. Love that. Yeah. So she was lovely. It was a really fun conversation. Adam, any any thoughts on stuff we didn't get to, or other stuff that you've learned along the way? Every episode could have been two hours long. Including the bonus episodes. And I I tried to make them (laughs) two hours long, to be fair. (laughs) Because it is like, you know, you could tell from when I start talking about the cognitive trick of celebrity. Like, there's four different directions you can go with all of this. The literal history, the cultural history, the science. So the big one for me was the John Garfield episode when we were talking about the rise and the development of the method but then we're also doing the John Garfield story and I just remember there was loads of good stuff well that's also our blacklist episode in a way too which Mm. you know yeah yeah I mean that episode really could have been three episodes the other cut we made is I wanted to say the title of the John Wayne episode, The Bomb That Killed John Wayne. I wanted to say that title 20 times in the episode. (laughs) I think you guys only let me say it three times because that is the greatest title ever. But no, the, the method, the idea that these medias or ways of presentation that are populist get captured by money and powerful forces and then become kind of BS, which then necessitates a rise of, they always call it neorealism. And if you look throughout artistic history, it's happened like 35 times, but yet never quite like the method, because the method was going right into the jaws of film. And it was such an interesting collision. I yeah. Do you do you feel like you're seeing when you go on to your films and you work with different actors? Do you feel like you have a sense of what the sort of new approach to acting is? Are you seeing new methods bubble up in the way that you know we kind of painted tried to paint this picture of what was happening at the actor studio and exploring new ideas and all that stuff? You know, it's crazy. It seems like the battle between sort of well-financed BS and reality is actually, it does happen in films. There's movies like The Florida Project. Oh, so great. Love that movie. And there's many other examples. But it feels like that particular battle is actually happening on, like, TikTok. (laughs) 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 Like, even though TikTok is owned by Chinese interests and they still censor certain things when they're on there... The whole aesthetic of what's real and what's not seems to have been that fight has happened on social media, even before TikTok, to some degree, Twitter, Facebook. What was the one where it was like could only be a 10 second clip? Snapchat. Yeah. Or Snapchat and Vines. 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 Oh, Vines. Yeah. Yeah, It's like whenever there's a new medium. Creative people are going to try and push themselves yep. and push each other and come up with new stuff. But, but I, I still think that fight happens in, on, in films and with television episodics. But it's more about the ideas and the style of presentation, whereas, you know, the, the actual way people behave in front of a camera 
it's the whole thing in social media is like no artifice hmm. like no the second you know you feel like you're scripted or an apology is happening and it's too planned out you're kind of ripped apart by the social media forces i'll, I'll give a shout out to nathan fielder too who i feel like is, oh, is peeling oh. the onion of that yeah. back uh, in a very interesting way that, these days a perfect uh, name to bring up yeah. that is a guy because i don't think that fight has ever been more intense than mm -hmm. it is right now. And the idea that Fielder smelled it out and just went, stood right with the one leg on each mm -hmm. side of that fault line is why it's, you know, he's one of the more brilliant yeah. guys out there working. Yeah. Um, let's just see if there's other little tidbits we want to mention. Um, well, Hadley, I know the Flynn episode felt like there was just <laughs> so much that we could have crammed in there. And we did, I mean, you know, including like this little throwaway moment where we realized that Errol Flynn may have been a slave runner at one point in his life. Like, my God. Um, but, you know, there's no shortage of just, I mean, that's another one where you could just kind of go from crazy Errol Flynn fact to er crazy Errol Flynn. That's a hell of a fun fact. Yeah, I know. <laughs> cocktail fun chatter. Yeah. yeah, he's a fascinating, I'm just endlessly fascinating by, fascinated by Errol Flynn because, yeah, I mean, he was, he did like manage enslaved people and he did claim that he had murdered like a boy and he did admit in his book to having sex with like 13 year old oh, quote native God. girls unquote Jesus. I mean he was a bad dude but yet that badness was considered like sexy and fun yeah. and like I would have liked to have been a white slave trader cool like it was like tapping in on people's darkest fantasies in this very perfect package and I don't love him <laughs> I'm gonna make that clear but I love his story and what it can tell us about how close all these things still are one of the things, and we hinted at it a little bit, but one of the things that the Flynn story taught for me was, because, you know, we pitch it towards, he's at the end of his career, and he kind of gets to play this, like, oh, you're a bit of a throwback, you're a bit of a rogue, and people, um, you know, look the other way, or they even chuckle in your direction as you do this. Um, one thing I realized is that basically every successive generation of men in Hollywood can tell themselves a story that, oh, the previous generation could really, boys could be boys, and mm -hmm. we, you know, there's now all these strict new rules and cancel cultures everywhere and, you know, so forth. But, you know, they use that as an excuse to just continue behaving the way that every generation of men have behaved. Absolutely. Time and time again. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just life, man. Yeah. Um, any other little moments? Yeah, you know, um, another person I got to speak to is uh, James Cromwell, or, or oh, J yeah. Jamie, as he, he goes by, and um, uh, I, we, you probably know from Succession, which Adam produces uh, and directed. Um, he is really one of the more fascinating people that I don't know if people really know his story, but he was, uh, well, his fa father, who we explored his story in the in this series, was blacklisted and was a, a director, but Jamie was a freedom bus rider. He was a black panther. Wow. Um, who went to Africa and met Huey Newton. Um, he has been on the cutting edge of uh, political activism his entire life. You might see stories these days about him gluing himself to Starbucks yeah. counters. Mm -hmm. um, incredibly... Um, meaningful animal rights activist um and then also just a, a dear kind person when i talked to him i just really enjoyed getting to know him a little bit but um uh just it, it was an incredible story and it, his life has been one of of artistic achievement but also of service there's a story about james Cromwell's dad that i don't think we put it ended up putting in but so he was blacklisted mm -hmm. right and basically iced out of hollywood mm -hmm. didn't get any roles except at one point his studio comes to him and is like forces him to do a role where he's basically playing an anti-communist No, they, like they, 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 Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. At RKO. <laughs> and Howard Hughes was uh, virulently yeah. anti-communist. And basically, um, one of the things he did when he bought RKO was just put all this manpower and money behind ferreting out the communists uh, in the company. And that was just one of his mission statements. Um, John Cromwell was under contract with RKO and they weren't happy about it. And so they offered him 
a movie. I was married to a communist. Oh, that's right. Uh, oh my and God. and um, uh, tried to force him to do it or to not do it and walk away, break the contract, right. and um, and be done with him. And that uh, was a, a breaking point with RKO. And they ch- actually changed the name. I don't know why they changed the name. That's a pretty effective that name. But they, they changed the name of the movie, and it did get made not with John... Cromwell, but he was horrified by yeah. by that. It was uh, just so vicious. Though. John Cromwell also, I mean, I, I know we we mentioned in the series though, unlike some other people, really had nothing to do with communism. He was just roped in and then thrown under the bus. So and but 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 then stood up and was yeah. you know wasn't willing to go along with it. So a really admirable person. Are there any episodes we haven't touched on? Or name checked at least. We didn't talk about uh, Willie Byoff, Willie Byoff. Uh, right. uh, oh, which was God. another incredible story, and and a story that really showed how. And this might be tr- it, it may be true that if you really burrow in on any moment in time and any place, you're going to find all of these seismic things that helped shaped the world or the country. But certainly, when we started digging into this place and this time, that story of. I mean, he was probably just a pretty average goon, but what he found himself in the middle of was a turning point in labor and unions in America um, was fascinating. And it was a really fun story to kind of parse out. And then all the ways it intersected with Walt Disney, who anytime you can kind of pick apart the the myth making around Walt Disney is interesting. And he obviously was a very complicated guy. So uh, that was another really fun episode to get to explore. Hey, you could actually argue of all of the episodes that one combines Hollywood with history-changing yeah. mm. events the most, because you really could argue that if the unions hadn't been sort of decimated, you know, the buy-off and the corruption stuff was big, but there were a bunch of the other mm-hmm. methods. You know, this guy, Bulware for General Electric, really made it his mission to figure out how to take apart the unions, and his technique is still used to this day. You're still seeing companies use these anti-union tactics but if the unions hadn't been kneecapped um it it really would have changed everything because all the wages went flat you saw the extreme right wing rise up in part because of that because austerity always breeds the extreme right so yeah of all of the episodes that one may relate to where we are right now Mm -hmm. the most. Mm -hmm. Sure. I really enjoyed uh, exploring in this season Ronald Reagan, his pivot. I mean, he was this FDR liberal. And through... A labor leader. (laughs) And then through his clashes with the unions, even as he was a labor leader, and his uh, desire to gain more power, he quickly pivoted to kind of the persona that he built his entire political future on. And that was all happening right in this time period that we were exploring. Um, In that episode, in a lot of the episodes, but in that episode, you get a sense of the kind of way the industry and the city interact with each other. And, you know, we have scenes in that episode of the cops being called in to beat down protesters who are outside of the gates of the studio. I mean, it really gives you this sort of texture of this industry, which is, you know, we tried to immerse ourselves in the in that world as we were also trying to tell this big, big, big story. Um, this is my segue to getting into talking a little bit about some of the other things that helped us along the way in terms of painting that. I mean, obviously having people like Hadley, who's an expert on this, was very helpful and you were able to paint that picture both in your writing and in being in the series. But especially Brian and Hadley, do you want to talk a little bit about the like sources you used, the learning you did, the people you talked to behind the scenes, just there's so much great journalism and writing about this era. Yeah, I mean, I always encourage people to to read whatever uh, <laughs> ghostwritten autobiography these people all wrote because you learn so much about the essence of what they wanted their image to be versus mm-hmm. who they were. And I found those enormously helpful. And, uh, you know, perfect example is Errol Flynn's My Wicked, Wicked Ways. I mean, it's just a masterpiece of like wanting to be Hemingway and, and being much worse than Hemingway. And <laughs> Hemingway was bad. And I was named ever his first wife. So I got to learn a lot about him growing up. Wow. And, yeah, I know. First of four. And, uh, you know, I think that also reading 
the trades of the time. You can find them on ProQuest. That was really useful, too. You can find Variety. You can find old Hollywood reporters. They're all fascinating. Newsreels of the time, that kind of thing. That's what gives you the essence, not the hard facts. That's what gives you kind of the sense of what's going on. You just have to kind of world build in your mind to really get a sense of a place. And a lot of that is from the media and how people wanted to portray themselves. You know, I think we're putting up a a bibliography for anyone who's really interested in digging into, you know, where we got so much of this. But I'll use the George Reeves episode as as an example of there's been a handful of books and articles written about that story. And each one has its own perspective on kind of what unfolded. And so it was really complicated kind of parsing the truth if Mm. we even did that, because I don't know that we definitively answered anything. And I'm sure some of the wonderful experts we spoke to will also listen to the episode and be like, I don't know about that. (laughs) So (laughs) sorry uh, to all of you, but um, yeah. And obviously there's a whole kind of continuing world of, storytelling about this era. We should shout out Karina Longworth, who does this amazing series. Mm-hmm. You, you must remember this, which I'm sure many listeners know, yes. but this was in that sort of same territory as well. Um, and Brian, we, at the very beginning of all this, started talking about this book, City of Nets, mm-hmm. which I kept returning to. I was, I read it in college and like I had to, you know, it's nice when you have an excuse to go crack a book <laughs> that's been sitting on your shelf since his sophomore year of college. Um, you know, and that sort of paints the picture of Hollywood in the 30s and 40s as a real immigrant town where all these sort of progressive people fleeing Germany kind of came here and really yeah. changed the, the the way that art was being made. Um, so, yeah. So, so we'll put up a bibliography. There's lots of other great work about this era. Um, Adam, I mean, you know this stuff, but do you, compared to how obsessive you are about basketball, <laughs> how <laughs> ah. obsessive are you about Hollywood history? You know, I, uh, you know, if Hadley is like a nine or a 10 on this, I'm like a five. Um, I watch a lot of old movies. I'm interested mostly in the directors from the 30s, 40s, 50s. So um, I know a fair amount living here. You're constantly, like the other day, we're walking buy a house and my wife is like oh apparently you know Howard Hughes used to live here and you know every fifth house here in Los Angeles someone famous lived in it so I knew a fair amount but no going into this podcast uh Hadley and and Brian and all the work you guys did took me into much deeper waters than than I ever knew. And the good sign was that I was really interested in it. I mean, I think the trick to this kind of storytelling is you you really have to fight against making the past nostalgic. Mm -hmm. You've got to make it active. And I thought you guys just did a tremendous job of making the past active. Thank you. Uh, I want to offer one big takeaway for me and then we should wrap up. Mm -hmm. But this is depressing but i I think if i walk away with one thought it's how awful alcoholism is i mean i felt like in editing this series every single episode there would be you know a part like at the top of the third act where it was just like and then this person's life fell apart at the bottom of a bottle i mean it was just like over and over and over again and you know i suppose that there's a question there of whether that was an expression of other things or whether that was the cause but i mean it was just stunning to me how much that was part of every every story, basically. Well, you see every story of the rise and fall of a band, an actor, yeah. a comic from the 80s, 70s, and 80s. It's always cocaine. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, these stories of Hollywood, 40s, 50s, 60s, alcohol, alcohol. alcohol then pills start to come in Mm -hmm. at some point and mix with alcohol and then you see a lot of people will die pretty quickly but yeah it's interesting you said it who knows if the alcohol is causing it or the alcohol is covering it Uh, another interesting thing real quick was something we talked about covering that we didn't have room for was um cigarettes which yeah. Were, yeah. were 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 at central to society at that point and we talked about Humphrey Bogart who died from uh cancer from his cigarette habit and then in the John Wayne episode we also 
talk about whether it was cigarettes or <laughs> nuclear testing that killed him. But um, that was a, it's an interesting story, obviously, about um, cigarettes and how they slowly over time kind of became not the norm in society, but also the, the pushback and how it parallels certain things today and certain industries, uh, fossil fuels. Um, and so it, it's, it, but when you watch movies from this time and when you explore these people, everyone's got a cigarette in their hand. Um, and so, but you know, maybe it's a weirdly hopeful story in that that's not necessarily the norm anymore. So, yeah, yeah. um, um, all right. As we wrap up, I know we just got off the second season. We're all taking a breath here, <laughs> but you know, inevitably, especially we did this with the first season, you know, we, we, the first season started really as let's tell this one story of this one era, but we very quickly thought about kind of, if we think of this as a lens, right. And the lens is basically, can we pick a small world that has felt large forces that help explain a sort of changing moment in, in this country's history. And we look at that small world and we look at the sort of tragedies that fell out in that small world. Can we explain something, you know, once we started to think, okay, this is a lens that we can carry around and we can look at other things, you know, we, we picked this era. But have any of you started to muse about other eras or other stories or other worlds that feel like they could they could help us do the same sort of thing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the big one is the adult film industry. Yes. I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, it's got the highest mortality rate of any of these sort of in the limelight industries and I don't know if there's a a, a better one to one. Uh, this is like what in the early two thousands, late nineties. I think yeah. late eighties to early two thousands. Well, even still, they just had a yeah. what was it like four years ago? They had like six adult film. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. 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 John Ronson did a great uh, podcast about a, a, yeah, the death a, of yeah. Yes, yeah. that John Ron. That was a fantastic mm-hmm. podcast. But you look and in the Ronson podcast, he ta- talks about how the internet took over the mm-hmm. adult film yeah. industry. Everything that's happened to America is reflected in that. And then the other one is pro wrestling. Oh yes, Jody and I talked about has been you know because of the steroids, substance abuse, the lifestyle, a lot of tragic deaths in that. I mean, I think an easy an easy one, Jesus, <laughs> uh, a fun one. You, you could always do like death on the stage, just about all the musicians in the seventies and Leonard Skinner and Janis uh, Joplin. Yeah. I mean, it would be so much fun, and everybody like is just about to die, but a lot of them are still alive, so we could get a lot of great interviews. I think it would be really fascinating, and what a momentous time of change in yeah. the country too, reflected in these artists who pass so young. So I think that one would be fun. The 70s, I mean, there's so many, the 70s could just be, yeah, you can look at sports, music, uh, even Hollywood as well, you know, in the 70s. Um, I think about political assassinations in the 70s. That was an era of like plane hijackings as well. I mean, just all that kind of stuff. D.B. Cooper, but that you didn't know. Right, yeah. But, um. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Breaking news. By the way, historian Hadley Mears is uncovered with Um, D.B. Cooper. Um, But anyway, so we'll leave it to listeners to suggest, um. If they have any other thoughts. Well, is there an era? Is is there any? Th- this isn't really for the podcast. So I'm just curious. Is yeah. there any era? Like, what is your cutoff here in terms of era? Like, what's the farthest far back, back you're willing to go? We don't. There's yeah. no. It's limit. tough to you, tell stories. You know. I mean, I think we pushed it just in terms of if you want to have actual voices and actual sort of living stories that feel alive. But there's plenty of ways to tell stories from a long time ago. What are you thinking? I mean, the 20s the is Spanish just so Armada. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I, you know, I'm also a royal historian. Well, so, yes. Um, but no, I mean, I think the 20s in terms of speaking 20s, of, you know, good. literary legend. I talk yeah. about Hemingway, Fitzgerald. I mean, there's so many fascinating characters, both male and female. Um, anything else we want to sneak in there? Should we say goodbye? Um, um, no, I like that you brought up what could next season be... You know what's interesting is listening to these, 
there were several that felt like they could be featured documentaries. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious. Know anyone who has a production company that has a bunch of different kinds of things? And I would be curious what the listeners, which ones the listeners uh-huh. think should be featured documentaries. Obviously, I'm partial to the bomb that killed John Wayne. <laughs> you just uh, love a good title. I do. It all flows from there. I do. But I, I thought the Hattie McDaniel one would make an incredible mm-hmm. totally. feature. In fact, of all of them, that's probably the one that mm-hmm. sticks out to me huh. the most. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious what the listeners think. Mm-hmm. All right. On that note, we will bring it an end to everyone's favorite episode, the bonus episode. Um, Adam, Hadley, Brian, thank you. But also... Folks, I hope you listen to the credits of every episode and actually get a sense of how many people helped make this season happen. And in particular, shout outs to Claire and Harry and Jenny and Zaylee and Joanna and Kendra and Catherine and Stacy and all these other folks who were part of this team who helped make this series because um, this stuff is hard work. And um, Amen. Yeah. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Thanks, right. Jody. Thank you. Thank you. 